I am George Anderson. I am Elizabeth Link. I am Ben Brannan. We are going on a journey through the Gospel of Mark with a sermon series titled, Reimagined. Together, we'll explore why the Gospel is in such a hurry for readers to get to know and keep up with Jesus. Today's sermon is a stop along the way of that journey. Join us as we reflect on what was, rethink what is, and reimagine what will be. Let's pray. Most gracious God, help us to hear your call to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read three call stories from the beginning of Mark's gospel. The first two call stories are together and are about two sets of siblings who, if you jump to another gospel, you find out are partners together. New Testament scholar Ben Witherington says that of the 12 disciples, there could have been four sets of brothers. In other words, there could have been two-thirds of the disciples being what we might call a band of brothers, strongly suggesting that those who are called into Jesus' company come as much by families as by individuals. The third call story comes from the next chapter. It tells of Levi, who as a Roman collaborator is very much unlike the first ones who are called in. He's the kind of person whom folks like Simon and Andrew, James and John normally would shun. Having the stories together gives us an interesting picture of how a faith community following Jesus can grow. It grows through friendships and kinships, and it also grows because outsiders find friends and a second family within the community. Listen to these call stories from Mark's gospel and listen for God calling you. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And then going to chapter 2, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around them. And he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. The word of the Lord. The flower arrangements in this church are always just absolutely gorgeous. I point your attention to these. They evoke the Union Presbyterian Seminary emblem that you can see on the ties of some of us who are here. I'm happy to welcome representatives of Union Presbyterian Seminary to worship today. As you heard, I'm alumni, so is Elizabeth, so is Ben, and so is my wife, Millie. To get into seminary, to get through seminary, to get a job out of seminary, I had to do something over and over again 
and that is talk about my sense of call. It began with my admissions interview. It was conducted by a man who grew up in this congregation and who later would become my favorite professor, Wilfred Hobby. George, tell me about your call to ministry. And I gave my most honest response, and honestly, it was confused. During student orientation, I was asked again to share my sense of call. Now, fortunately, several students went ahead of me, and I could practice what I was going to say in my head. I was still honest, but it was a more polished honesty. I was asked again those times that I met with presbytery committees that wanted to know if I was suitable as a candidate for ministry and suitable to accept a call. I was honest with them, but it was a safe honesty. I talked about my call in ways that would not raise any red flags. Now, the process was necessary. I mean, congregations deserve to have ministers with genuine faith, necessary training, skills to serve, and a conviction that he or she is called to this vocation. To make my point, I'll put it in a very crass way. Before a church gives someone a salary with benefits, they want to know if that person is fit for their ministry there. Now, the reason I put it so crassly is that we ministers, by answering the question about our sense of call related to getting through seminary and getting a job, we, we begin to equate a calling with taking a job. We ministers even start talking as if Christian vocation is simply Christian work, and that maybe, maybe, all jobs are supposed to be callings, as if there is something wrong with doing a job primarily to pay the bills. Perhaps we Presbyterian ministers who have been raised with the Protestant work ethic do this more than ministers in other traditions, but does every job, whether it's paid or unpaid, does every volunteer task have to be a spiritual experience? There's a secular version of what I'm talking about, and it goes something like this. Find a job doing what you most love to do. I have given that advice to my three daughters because very often it's good advice. But I saw a TikTok video recently that reminded me that what one does for a living doesn't have to be one's life. The woman in the video said that she once believed that she should find a job doing what she most loves doing, and what she most loves doing is music. She loves listening to it. She loves playing it. She loves learning from others about it. She loves teaching others music. So she decided to become a music major in college, and then she accepted a job as a music teacher, and she came to regret that decision because music became something that she had to do to pay her bills. And it got to the point where almost every time she played, listened to, or taught music, it was a chore to meet a deadline. At the end of the teaching day, the last thing she wanted to do was what she used to most love doing. So she changed careers. She got a degree in accounting, something she's good at and doesn't hate, but something that really is to pay her bills so that she can pursue what she most loves on her own time and on her own terms. 
Now, again, not everyone is the same, and I'm certainly not saying that it's a mistake to have a job doing what you most love to do. I told her story simply to say that we can get sideways when we start making the automatic assumption that answering God's call in life is about doing jobs. I don't think the call stories in Mark's gospel are about Jesus offering employment, not at their heart. These are stories about being called into a fellowship with a cause, being called into a life. These stories are not about five men doing work that doesn't matter as fishermen and then being called to really important work and becoming disciples, but they're about what happens when one is in a relationship with Jesus, with God. These stories are not even about five individuals coming to Jesus. They are about a community gathering around Jesus. And I think that we can learn a lot from these stories about how communities of faith gather around Jesus today. Let's take a closer look. With all three call stories that I read, something happens that is easily misunderstood. Jesus calls out from the shore, hey, follow me. And five gainfully employed men drop what they're doing and follow Jesus. Wow, just say it and they will come. If only it were that easy today to grow a faith community. We could just put an ad on a sign, a commercial on the radio, a flyer in mailboxes, crayons in a coloring book with a brochure inside front doors, show up on a social media feed, then print extra bulletins and sit back because we're going to say, y'all come and they'll just come. By the way, Emory would like to thank one of the South Roanoke churches for the crayons, coloring book, and brochure that showed at our house this past week. I'm having fun, but I'm not making fun. Hey, we do some of those things. It would be foolish not to because word needs to get out that at least that we are here with doors open where people can possibly find a community in which they can grow in their faith and serve the world. And some churches truly might be so effective at marketing that they do grow tremendously in this way. I'm not judging, not this morning anyway. But what is happening between Jesus and the disciples is not what I thought happened when I heard this story as a child. I heard this story as a miracle story. It starts with two guys, Simon and Andrew. They're on a boat fishing when this stranger calls to them to quit gathering fish and and follow him to gather people. And then like men possessed... Without question or hesitation, they drop everything and follow this guy. I mean, as they're walking away, do they say, oh, yeah, we're going with you, but what's your name? And I thought, is God going to call me like that? Is that how it's going to go down? When I decide what I'm going to do with my life, am I just going to hear this voice and somehow I'm going to trust it and do exactly what I'm told? Hearing these stories as miracle stories can make you miss something that I think is really important. Jesus already knows Simon and Andrew. He already knows James and John. He already knows Levi. That this is debated by some commentators baffles me. I mean, Jesus and these siblings are all of the same age. They all live in and around Capernaum. Jesus moved there from Nazareth when he was a child. 
In his day, Capernaum's population is only about 1,500 people. That's like just, just a bit larger than the size of our church congregation. I've been to Capernaum. I could walk through the ruins in a matter of minutes. I could yell to somebody on the opposite side of town, hey, come over here and see what I just found. These people spent most of their waking hours outside, often eating meals on rooftops or in open courtyards. And these were guys who were the same age. Yes, I've been to Capernaum, and I lived in Mississippi, so I know how well people get to know each other in small communities. That they would not have known each other. Now that would be a true miracle story. Now, to be fair, Luke's version of the story is different. That gospel adds spice, the salt of a miracle, the pepper of a conversion. In Luke's version, Jesus is actually in the boat with Simon and Andrew, teaching the crowd on the shore. And then hearing that his boatmates fished all night and caught nothing, he tells them to cast the net on the other side, that they then pull in this huge haul inspires Simon first to confess his sins and then inspires him and Andrew plus their partners James and John to leave everything behind and follow this wonder worker. But even in Luke's telling, there is clear evidence of an existing relationship. Despite the fact that they're exhausted having fished all night catching nothing, they do Jesus a favor by allowing him to sit in their boat and teaching the people on the shore and then even before the miracle happens, Simon calls Jesus master, suggesting he not only knows Jesus, but already looks up to him as a leader, as a guide. But getting back to Mark's stories, they're, they're not miracle stories. They're not conversion stories. It's simply a story about starting something because it's time. Do you remember the two verses I read before telling of Jesus yelling to Simon and Andrew from the shore that John is arrested and Jesus picking up where John was forced to leave off, preaching that sermon, calling for repentance, announcing the good news of the kingdom of God being right there at hand, which we will later learn in Mark's gospel is at least in part about a new way of being God's people, a new way of seeing, of believing, of living. But he begins that sermon by saying, it's time. The time is fulfilled. Something has been building and now it's time for it to start. And that intro suggests that what is really going on now when he calls to Simon and Andrew is him saying to them, hey boys, it's time. I'm suggesting to you that Simon and Andrew already know something about what Jesus is talking about. They already know something about what Jesus is going to be about and what they're going to be about if they join him. They already know something from conversations that they have had of something of his fresh vision of Israel, of scripture, of the law of God, of what it means to be God's people in this particular moment of time. They already know something of what Jesus stands for. And if he is now going public to spread his message, well, he's going to need some help. It's not something that he needs to do alone. And now's the time, time for them to decide if they're going to join him for what is needed in that moment. Now, were they crystal clear about what it was going to mean to follow Jesus? No, 
We don't need Mark's later stories of their confusion and struggles to tell us that. That's not how relationships and communities work. I did not know all that it would mean for me to be a minister when I decided to go to seminary. I did not know all what it would mean to be a part of your lives for the past 23 years. Union Seminary did not teach a course on pastoring during a pandemic, by the way. So no, I didn't even know all that being a pastor to you would mean two years ago. For those of you who are married or were married, did you know all that marriage was going to mean when you offered or accepted a proposal? For those of you who have children, did you have any idea what all that would mean? Did you know about your deepest friendships, what they would mean when those friendships first began? Did those of you who are members of this church know all that it would mean to be a part of our fellowship when you first joined? Or maybe when you first started giving conscious effort to being a Christian and pleasing God, did you really have that figured out at the beginning? Those are rhetorical questions, of course. Answering the call of Jesus in Mark's gospel is not to have all the answers. It is to be in a fellowship around Jesus in the gospel calls and then seeing where that leads in life. Knowing something already about what Jesus is about, the brothers decide to join in. Now, these five happened to give up for a time their day jobs because that's what the moment calls for. But Jesus asks this of others very rarely in the Gospels. What Jesus does ask everyone to consider, what he teaches when he talks to the crowds, is for everyone to consider what it means to love God with heart and with soul and with strength in life. And that has as much to do with how one prays and sleeps and falls asleep at night as it does to what work one does during the day. I want to close by thinking about how people might feel called to be a part of this fellowship, this congregation. Paul calls the church the body of Christ, and Second Presbyterian seeks to be an expression of the body of Christ. That is, we try to be the means by which the good news of the gospel of justice and compassion is experienced and shared. Jesus' calls is to be the cause of this gathered community. How might people authentically join our fellowship and our cause? Perhaps from these call stories in Mark, we can gain an appreciation of how powerful our friendship and family connections in building a community. Those connections draw people in when they already exist. People like to go places where they know people and where they feel comfortable. Perhaps these call stories in Mark tell us we can appreciate how the Levi's of the world, the outsiders, those who don't know anybody, become a part of our community. If they come in not knowing anybody, perhaps even being very different from folks who are here, but if they find fellowship here, friendships and kin-like connections, then they'll remain and change us. Perhaps we'll let Luke's gospel break in on the conversation and know that conversion has a place, that sometimes people who need to find a new life direction can find it if they can just find others to support them, who walk with them, and who help them go in a different direction. 
And then maybe we could go back to Mark's gospel and remember that not everyone is looking to turn their lives around when they come to us. They already have an ongoing relationship with Jesus and what they might find in us is a community of common devotion and common calls. In short, we can remember that being called by Jesus is not being called into a job. It's being called into a fellowship with him and with each other. It is a fellowship with a cause to live by, to witness to the good news of God's grace, whatever that means in a given moment. However, the movement, if it grows and is healthy, we know that it is grace that calls us in. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.